Hello, hello. I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes sad, sometimes serious, and most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Emily Richmond, who works as a licensed mental health counselor, performer, and speaker. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions you want the answers to, and answering questions that you didn't know you had. Whoa. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgender female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I am making labor playlists are you is it are they calm or motivating is it like a warm-up like exercising so i'm my plan is to make four labor playlists um i made an oldies playlist that's all like calm oldies music that you can like sway to Mm -hmm. which was hard to hard to figure out because like a lot of oldies music is like all of a sudden someone's screaming um (laughs) <laughs> or like yeah. the the instruments are really loud right here so but mm-hmm. I'm I'm working on my like pop one right now which is really hard because not pop pop music is not usually like very calm so I have to kind of just like use associations I feel like as a music therapist this is like one of the most important things I'm going to do in my life is create these playlists nice. um but yeah I'm gonna have a an ambient music one and like a folksy one. Uh, so those are my four labor playlists so far. Um, I feel like four is an okay number. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, there's going to be a wider range of emotions and moods and you'll have yeah. plenty to choose from. Mm-hmm. The, the most notable song that I remember playing at your wedding, I don't remember the title, was Buddy Holly. Um, yeah. I don't remember the title. And I love Buddy Holly. I love Buddy Holly, yeah. But I know what you mean about like old music, just having noises. Yeah. All of a really sudden loud. it's like, ah! you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. So I think, I don't even know if Buddy Holly made it onto the playlist. Cause he has a lot of noises, noises yeah. going yeah. on. Okay. I don't know what Buddy Holly was playing in my wedding too. Cause a lot of his stuff is like, I hate you. Um, uh, 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 <laughs> this is a fun song, but I really hate you. Um, oh, I'm gonna, uh, uh, yeah i don't know oh yeah like a lot of like like young cis guys it was just about like why are you mistreating me come here so i can yeah Yeah. like all my love all my kisses you don't know what you've been missing (laughs) oh okay oh that's what this is about all right shocked sure (laughs) all righty and i'm sarah an lpc from pennsylvania transplant from south jersey i'm a straight cis hat white woman uh and my pronouns are she her and i haven't worn mascara in three weeks wow yeah it's pretty cool uh i mean it's part of that not trying to use plastic thing which you know and which i talk about pretty frequently and i bought some natural stuff and i was like this is a lot of work because <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean i'm one of those people that i mean for years and years and years i just put all this work into my lashes every morning it's so much work um, just like making them very long, uh, 
making the distance between the strokes beautiful. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I really like the look of like a bold brow and uh, no mascara. So it's like an, obviously it's nice. Um, not sacrificing too much there, but it's like a nice, a nice other piece of my day that I've cut out. Like I've, I went from like thinking I had needed an hour to get ready in the morning to just needing like 15 minutes and it's and beautiful I mean like from putting clothes on and everything. And it's really very good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Especially when like most of the morning is just me staring in the mirror mm-hmm. or just like staring at the corner of the room. Like what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. That's my that's my uh, my morning meditation and tea time. Certainly, there's especially in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of just like there's a lot of windows I could look out, but I'm just looking at the corner, looking at the corner with spider webs. Yeah, like is and that I'm a like, spider that web? Like a, yeah, that seems like a know. simple life. Yeah, can you, can you bring me into your fold, spider? <laughs> you just you do such nice things for people, and all they do is step on you. Yeah, suck you up with vacuums. I know. Sorry, spiders. I just like can't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, certainly, certainly needing to do a lot of self-care over the last couple of weeks. Um, and yeah, man, really digging into that, digging into that tool belt. Beautiful. Deep into that tool belt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think getting ready in the morning is like the number one thing you can do to like insert self-care. Um, yeah, because it's like rough. Yeah. Speaking I- as someone who just woke up, like it's rough. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And I think what we talked about in our last episode, Joanna, is also that like how we are carrying ourselves and how we like touch and treat our body too. like just trying to not like jerk around as much and trying to like be gentle with myself, trying to like not scrub vigorously when I'm in the shower. Like I'm just trying to eat, treat everything more gently. And it's really, it's very nice, but you have, I'm having to like be vigilant because there's a lot of opportunities to just like space out space out and also like smack my body around which I don't want to do you know what's really helped is a shower chair um, <laughs> I got one because I can't reach my feet anymore and yeah. uh it's amazing that it's like really, really nice. it's really nice yeah. to just like sit in the shower oh yeah I've added something to my list now <laughs> it's beautiful sitting in the shower I'd like to do that but yeah I mean that's that's the haps mm-hmm um, do you have any housekeeping? I don't think so. Per usual, you know. Yeah, I'm, I don't either. I'm, I'm perfect, mm. imperfect. <laughs> what about you? No, I don't. I don't think so. Okay, nope. Cool. Yeah. Cool beans, cool. Yeah. All right. We'll stay tuned after the break for our uh, lesson for today. And now it's time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good and bad, and everything in between in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources for today include The Rebellious History of the Fat Acceptance Movement by Linda Gerhart, How Fat Phobia is Rooted in Racism and is a Social Justice Issue via the Pangaeanetwork.org, and Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina Strings. 
All right, trigger warning today, we will be talking about discrimination against fat, and we will also be talking briefly about discrimination against Black, Indigenous, and people of color. All right, Joanna, we're going to start with some terms today. Start us off. All right, first term is fat phobia, which is a term that in that is like more in the zeitgeist now. Uh, yeah. Could be more, but it's, uh, it's definitely growing in uh, the awareness held by folks. Okay, fat phobia, the intense fear or dislike of fat becoming fat, fat bodies. Next term is weight stigma, also known as weight bias or weight-based discrimination. It's a discrimination or stereotyping based on a person's weight. Thin privilege, and this is just a quote, by virtue of some characteristic of your body, in this case, being below a certain size, you have greater access to resources and face less discrimination in society than people without that characteristic. You can have thin privilege and still hate your body. That is an important uh, factor in thin privilege. Mm -hmm. And that was said by Christy Harrison, MPHRD, CND, CDN. Last term today is body hierarchy. This is a systematic system that ranks body (laughs) size, shape, facial features, hair, and hair as being more or less desirable and denigrates bodies that are seen as less desirable. This goes back to the 15th century. Wow. So some of this material talks about, it's way long ago. This material talks about how art changed western art changed um from i guess we're talking like 13th to 18th centuries like around the time the slave trade happened so these these uh white bodies being painted as like bountiful and Mm. larger and beautiful and black and brown bodies being painted as thin and undesirable and then like you know somewhere along the line a a shift definitely happened but i want to make a very big point here that a lot of like a lot of the history we do a lot of history is very white centric Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very much based on there's a lot of like second wave feminism in this history lesson so I just want to like make that clear that second wave feminism was like first wave feminism very much seeking out interests of middle class uh white you know cishet women so just keeping that in mind as we read through all of this um yeah thanks for listening First question, why is weight stigma a social justice issue? Mm-hmm. So let's keep in mind employment, healthcare, mental health, and physical health, not from weight. Joanna, I am, you know, we both work with people that have, you know, recovering from eating disorders. And mm-hmm. we have all known that maybe one or two at the very least health professionals have said to them that they look great when they're in the midst of their eating disorder, when it's at its worst. Mm-hmm. Um, it also affects your ability to enjoy things like going to the gym, flying on an airplane, eating at a restaurant, or going for a walk. All right. So I said first question, but that was the only question. <laughs> it was right, the first. Talk- Thank you. Oh, yeah. It, technically, it was. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the origins, Joanna, of the fat acceptance movement. Like many counterculture movements in the 1960s, it all started with a sit-in. Mm-hmm. In 1967, yes, 500 people came together in Central Park in New York City to protest bias against fat people. Together, this group ate, carried signs of protest, burned diet culture books, which I love, and photos of the model Twiggy, and were visibly, publicly, and loudly fat without being apologetic. I did not change that sentence because I thought that that was very uh, profound. That same year, a man named Llewellyn or Lou Louderbeck wrote an article for the Saturday Evening Post titled, More People Should Be Fat, in response to the discrimination that his wife was facing. This was one of the first public defenses of fatness in the mainstream, speaking out against fat discrimination. You're going to see that a lot of this 
a lot of this movement took place because men were upset with the discrimination their wives were facing again interesting again a more yeah. privileged group being listened to because uh yeah originally called the national association to aid fat americans when it was founded in 1969 nafa was groundbreaking in addressing weight bias and discrimination against fat people as a civil rights issue in their early days they focused on letter writing campaigns and providing a social network for its members which included fat people as well as those who were attracted to fat people NAFA began holding an annual conference which allowed fat people to meet, dance, celebrate, find community, and even find romance. To this day, NAFA is an important resource on the discrimination fat people face in society, focusing on bias in healthcare, employment, and education. They provide resources to help fat people self-advocate as well as advocating to make weight a protected class, offering fat people the some degree of legal protection from discrimination. Next, we're going to talk about the Fat Underground and the Fat Liberation Manifesto. A group of women in Los Angeles came together and formed the Fat Underground. Their form of activism was more confrontational than NAFA's, informed by second wave feminists and gay activism of the 1970s. Indeed, many of its members were radical feminists and queer women. The Fat Underground began as a more radical and activism-minded chapter of NAFA, but eventually split from the parent organization. Judy Free Spirit and Sarah Aldebaran published their Fat Liberation Manifesto in the April 1979 issue of Off Our Backs, a radical feminist magazine. And this is a quote from that. We believe that fat people are fully entitled to human respect and recognition. We are angry at the mistreatment by commercial and sexist interests. These have exploited our bodies as objects of ridicule, thereby creating an immensely profitable market, selling the false promise of avoidance of or relief from that ridicule. We see our struggle as allied with the struggle of other oppressed groups against classism, racism, sexism, ageism, capitalism, imperialism, and the like. And this is just also to remind you, this is in 1979. Too. Yeah, yeah. How long have we been openly speaking against yeah. capitalism and imperialism? Mm-hmm. All right. The Fat Underground was closely aligned with the Radical Therapy Collective. Some members of the Fat Underground were also members of this collective who believed that many psychological issues were the product of societal oppression. The phrase, diets are a cure that doesn't work for a disease that doesn't exist, was coined by the Fat Underground. Um, and this is the basis for feminist therapy. The idea that um, if you are a member of an oppressed group, your psychological issues will be of more challenge. Let's talk about fat acceptance and feminism. All Ooh. right. Much of the focus in fat activism has been on the oppression of fat women in particular. This can be traced back to the fat acceptance movement ties to feminism's radical second wave, as well as the fact that NAFA and early fat activism was spearheaded by men, but focused on the discrimination of their wives that they experienced. Many early fat activists believed that diet culture was a tool of patriarchal oppression hmm, used to exert control over women's bodies hmm. and lives. Hmm. Modern fat activism is still primarily led by and focused on women, but aims to be more inclusive of men and non-binary people. The fat acceptance movement has its roots in 1960s activism, but in the late 1980s and early 1990s evolved with the times. In the academic world, fat studies became a legitimate field of study, and universities throughout the U.S. offering at least one fat studies course. 
In 2008, Esther Rothblum and Sandra Solovey worked to edit the Fat Studies Reader. Compiling the articles, personal essays, studies, and work of fat activists from previous decades into a tome preserving the cornerstones of the fat acceptance movement. That's amazing. Mm. All right, let's talk about health at every size and intuitive eating. So health at every size or haze, which is trademarked, is now something of a buzzword and a concept that registered dietitians and clinicians who treat eating disorders like anorexia are embracing with open arms. However, it has its roots in the fat, queer, feminist rebellion of groups like the fat underground. The trademark for the term is owned by the Association of Size Diversity and Health, or ASDA, but the origins of health at every size are older than ASDA by decades. Mm-hmm. Health at every size takes the core tenets of the fat acceptance movement, coined by radical fat activists, and applies them to a weight-neutral approach to healthcare. All healthcare, also. Uh, this uh, The ideas behind Hayes as a movement were painstakingly advanced by fact activists over the course of decades, which is important to remember as these concepts go mainstream. Intuitive eating and the anti-diet approach are offshoots of the work these activists did to question the conventional wisdom around how we eat. As, the, as these concepts became more widely known, it is not unusual for their tenants to be co-opted by diet culture. Remember that social justice and discrimination against fat people are at the heart of haze and intuitive eating. It's also vital that these movements not exclude the very people they were created for. And I'm just going to go through the tenets of health at every size. Number one is weight inclusivity. Accept and respect the inherent diversity of body shapes and sizes and rejecting the idealism or pathologizing of specific weights. Two, health enhancement. Support health policies that improve and equalize access to information and services and personal practices that improve human well-being, including attention to individual physical, economic, social, spiritual, emotional, and other needs. Number three, respectful care. Acknowledge our biases and work to end weight discrimination, weight stigma, and weight bias. Provide information and services from an understanding that socioeconomic status race, gender, and sexual orientation, age, and other identities impact weight stigma and support environments that address these inequities. Four, eating for well-being. Promote flexible, individualized eating based on hunger, satiety, and nutritional needs and pleasure rather than any externally regulating eating plan focused on weight control. And number five, life-enhancing movement. Support physical activities that allow people of all sizes abilities and interests to engage in enjoyable movement to do to the degree that they choose. So stay tuned after the break for our interview for today. Emily Richmond is a counselor, artist, and speaker working in Eastern Washington state on the unceded land of the Yakima, Palouise, Walla Walla, and Sayuse people. She is an anti-diet fat liberationist and works with clients to heal trauma, set boundaries, and find an authentic way of living within systems of oppression. She also seeks to connect with others through her first love of theater and her newer outlets of stand-up comedy and visual art. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Yay! Thank you for having me. I want to just provide one clarification just for my own heart and just to make sure that um, we know that it is the Palouse and the um, Cayuse people. Palouse but the Cayuse. other two you did great no that's good too i appreciate that Palouse and cayuse all right emily well thank you so much for joining us um how are you doing 
Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I just kind of got over a cold. And so while I have all my energy back, um, I just find that everything has settled in my chest. And so I'm mm -hmm. clearing my throat every 10 seconds. But overall, I'm, I'm feeling good. How are you all? All right. Great. Also clearing my throat every 10 seconds. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to try to cut most of them out, but I'm sorry. Apologize, <laughs> listeners, if you hear any. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Emily, again, I thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to hear about, you know, everything in that intro from fat liberation to definitely stand up comedy, <laughs> visual yeah. art. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Well, when you read that, I, I was like, wow, I sound extremely impressive. <laughs> I don't feel that impressive on a daily basis, but when you like put it all together, it sounds incredible. Um, yes. So I started out in performing arts. I was an actor since I'm probably, I don't know, 12, 13, maybe. And I'm 41 now, so you can tell how long that's been. And I studied theater in college in my undergrad. I got a theater arts degree. Um, I just really loved performing. And I, I had no idea I was going to become a therapist. I never thought about it. It just um, sort of happened. I had a really, really good therapist in my 20s. And I distinctly remember an experience in a session when I don't remember exactly what I said. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Okay. I think I said something like, um, it's just so shitty, you know, or whatever. I was, I had gone through a breakup and I was having a lot of trouble and he was just like, it is shitty. And I had this moment where I was like, Ugh! I think I had held, uh, you know, therapists up to this pedestal. Cause all you see on TV is like, they're all medical doctors who prescribe you medication and they wear, you know, tweed with elbow patches and, um, they all look like Freud for whatever reason. And uh, I just was like, oh, like regular people or therapists? I wonder if I could do that. <laughs> and so then that sort of started this like ball rolling and it was several years until I even started grad school. But um, I actually think my theater training quite helped. Um, actually my entry, like my essay or whatever, my personal statement that I made to apply to grad school was all about how being an actor and a director is very similar to being a therapist because you have to understand people or characters really well in order to do both. And um, I just think it's actually easier to be a therapist because you can actually ask clients things. And when you're reading a play, you have to assume a lot of things about characters. Um, so in any case, yeah, so I started out as a performer and then um, decided for my, you know, second career, I was going to be a therapist and I um, love what I do. And, and in terms of, you know, being a fat liberationist and, um, you know, trying my best to be as anti-racist as possible and, you know, all of that, I mean, that truly was born out of my own experience as a fat person. Um, I did my own work and have been as I was like going to grad school and, you know, doing all of my hours and becoming a therapist. And so it, I feel like it's just sort of natural. Like, I think it would be very hard for me, nay, impossible probably to um, be a fat liberationist for myself, for my own health and like to be able to thrive and then to participate and be complicit in diet culture uh, or like white supremacy, like in, sessions as a therapist you know so i think it just sort of i don't know it, just, it sort of happened and um and i really love what i get to do 
I don't know if that answers your question, but hopefully. No, it definitely does. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed that I took like one stand-up class right before the pandemic, and I noticed mm-hmm. how much that helps my group therapy. Just being able, and I, I like not. Absolutely. I can't like specifically say what in the stand-up did it, but I just felt more like more competent, like looking at everybody, feeling the energy and like Mm -hmm. improvising off of that. Um, It's so cool how all those things kind of tie together. You know, stand-up was interesting because I also never thought about being a stand-up comedian ever until I was in my twenties. And I um, essentially, I had a friend who was really good friends at the time with a pretty well-known comedian now, but when he was first coming up, we would spend a lot of time, go to his comedy shows and just talk. And people kept telling me to do stand up. And so finally I asked his advice and he basically was like, get a notebook, write down those funny stories, try it at an open mic. And if you eat shit, then I guess you just tried it. And if they laugh, then you should go back. And I was like, well, all right, I can't really argue with that advice. And so I did that and they laughed. And it wasn't until like almost 10 years later, I realized Maybe they were only laughing because I read two jokes off of my hand, not because they were funny. I mean, either way, it's fine. It like launched my career, but um, but I think you're absolutely right, uh, Joanna, because I think the thing about stand up, even more than like acting, you know, uh, as a skill, is that you are the only person on stage. It is your writing. I mean, unless you're ripping off other comedians, which is like very uncool, but it's like your writing. And if something happens, if somebody heckles you, if you like forget the punchline to your joke, you have no recourse but to just keep going, figure out something, right? I think it really prepares you. Even when you're on stage in a play with a cast, if you totally like drop your line, there's often going to be somebody there that can save you. They'll jump ahead or they'll improv something or whatever. When you're doing stand up, like that is it. It's you. You're by yourself. And you're also playing yourself. You're not playing a care. I mean, some comics play characters, but like for me, you're playing yourself. It's me. It's just me on a microphone and stuff that I wrote. And I think that creates a very unique set of skills in terms of for lack of a better way to say it, like crowd wrangling, mm-hmm. which I think is an essential skill in group work because you have all these competing, you know, personalities and people that want to be heard and things they need to share and people who want to share but would never share and you want to draw them out. And I think it's a really good skill actually to have for that type of work. Absolutely. Yeah. It was actually a therapist that told me to do <laughs> not told me encouraged me to do stand-up comedy um yeah 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 oh that's so neat Emily hearing about that I'm really thinking about this ongoing conversation that we've had on the show of like how harmful tv and movies are because they like set this ridiculous expectation and a lot of writers are very out of touch with like the like a common (laughs) working class person in our country right and how a lot of times when there are tough interactions on TV and movies, there's just a cut and we don't know what happens. Like how, how yes. do you learn how to keep going? <laughs> I, think yes. that, I think that y'all are touching on something very important in that is that we are not really, we don't really have a lot of skills naturally to just know right. how to keep going when something doesn't go the way we need it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think the other thing that stand up, I think taught me, I mean, I think it teaches lots of people, but I noticed it specifically is that, 
I had to get kind of tough and I don't mean like suck it up, don't have feelings, but when you're on stage and somebody heckles you or they don't laugh, like, oh, when they don't laugh at all, like crickets, you know, you, you crafted this bit and then you deliver it and it's just crickets. That can be, if you like allow it to be such a huge ding to your ego, right? And not just like, oh, I'm not as great as I thought I was, but like, maybe I'm terrible at this. Maybe I should never do this again. And I think if you spend time around enough comics, at least I was lucky enough to make friends with a lot of great comedians who were like, hey, listen, you have to you have to do a bit like at least five times before you figure out how to do it right. That's why we have open mics, you know, and you're like, oh, OK, yeah. And I think the thing that teaches you is like, oh, we're not going to be great at something the first time. It is literally yes. impossible. Even yes. if you're a naturally funny person, which I would say I'm a naturally well, natural is debatable. I'm pretty sure that like the childhood trauma of being like bullied for being fat probably had something to do with it. But even if you're a humorous or quote naturally funny person, stand up is a very specific art, right? Like writing is a specific skill, fiction writing versus nonfiction writing. You know, all every every skill that we have is exactly that a skill you have to practice, even if you have some sort of talent or personality trait that like lends towards it nobody is getting up the first night at an open mic and absolutely killing it and if they tell you they did that's a lie they might have had a couple bits that had good you know a good laugh moment or whatever but nobody has this perfectly crafted set even if they've been sitting at home and writing it because the nature of stand-up is you have to work it out in front of a crowd you have to have other human beings to tell your jokes to <laughs> whether they laugh or not and so that's why i think one of the biggest things that you know taught me and reinforced was like nobody's good at anything the first time like practice is essential to build skills period which i think helps us maybe lighten up on ourselves right and we can and i think the, the key there right which is a thing i talk about with clients all the time is what am i supposed to be learning from this <laughs> right? which you can extrapolate to like anything right but in stand-up it's like what am i supposed to be learning oh I paused too long right there, or I went too fast. I didn't give him a chance to hear it. Or, you know what would be a funnier word there, right? Be for whatever reason. And, you know, what did I learn from this experience? And I think that's a really helpful lesson for life. <laughs> it's a great yeah. tool of self-compassion too. I mean, it's, it's a great yeah. opportunity to kind of come in and rescue yourself there. And you, you really salvage a lot of things that you you do learn mm -hmm. instead of, as you said, kind of allowing the ego to be dinged or not yes. sitting with it for too long. Yeah. yeah. And I think that there is a chance of that too, right? Like, oh man, that, you know, show that I screwed up on like two years ago, it's like, man, you gotta let it go, you know? But I mean, how do you let it go? Great, great question. That's <laughs> And I think that's, you know, one of the things that we do as our job is like, let me teach you some tools to let it go, which isn't really letting it go. It's like, let me sit with all my discomfort and then process it and figure out what was I supposed to be learning from this and then, you know, move forward. But yeah. Yeah. I'm also thinking of it as a therapist, like you're not going to get it right every time too. Like yeah. we're not, oh, yeah. we are definitely infallible, mm -hmm. like a hundred percent. And it's like our experience and our, and our training that has come in to make it seem like it's natural. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it's not, I mean like my stand up when I did my stand up thing, I had to, I was like in my car 
going over it over and over and over again, writing it down, remembering yeah. it. So it sounded natural when I was doing it. But like, I don't sure. think I realized that stand up was not just like someone like, hey, this is my thought, you know, <laughs> yeah, that it was like a very practiced and rehearsed thing that that sounded chill. But that's almost like what we as therapists like we are we have a lot of practice and we have a lot of like learning and skill yeah. building behind all of what we do so it seems like we're super chill but there was a yeah. lot that went into that <laughs> I actually was just talking with somebody I don't recall who it was the other day but about how I'm like um I saw some you know meme or something where somebody's like why should I go to therapy it's just paying for a friend or whatever you know that old trope and I was like they're not a therapist. And so I was like, I want to be very clear so that you understand. You know how ducks look real peaceful on the top of the water and their legs are going bananas, keeping them afloat? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, it looks like we're just paid to listen to you, which is part of it. But under the surface, we are thinking, we are critically thinking about what you are saying, noticing your body language, comparing it to stuff that you told us two weeks ago and how that might enter into it because you're not considering the thing that you told us two weeks ago that we are like, oh, wow, like, wow, that's linked. We should probably talk about that thing, right? And I agree with what you're saying in that we have to develop those skills. I remember being like right out of grad school with my associate's license and just being terrified that I was going to be found out. Like, <laughs> no, they're going to know that I don't know how to do this, that I'm just out of grad school. Right. And over time, you just learn, I mean, how to how to do the work with people and how to notice things. Right. And and you also, I think, learn. I jokingly told somebody the day I was like, listen, every human being is unique except for their mental health. There's like four things that it could be. You just got <laughs> to down to the four. One of them. One, which one is it? Is this abandonment? Did you did you like? Is there trauma? Are you neurodivergent? Like what is, there's not that many things. Like they just manifest in myriad ways, right? Which, I mean, it's more than four. I don't want to reduce all humans to these four things, but ultimately, you know, I think over time what we learn is what's, you know, the important thing to listen to here. How can I help them to unpack this thought process or this, you know, emotional experience? And then it's just kind of like this, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like this back and forth sort of dance, you know, it's like the improv of it, I guess, is what I would say, you know, that something happens. I mean, I've, I'm sure the two of you have this same experience many times where you're like, things are going okay. Client seems to be doing all right. Just kind of unpacking like, yeah, you know, normal stuff, this and that. And then you ask a question immediately. It's like Niagara Falls and you're like, Wow. Wow. It was like I literally pushed a button. And the first time it happened, I think I was sort of startled. Like, I, I didn't think this was real. I thought this was a thing on television that they just do for dramatic effect. But it's one of the few things on television for dramatic effect that is real. Because when you get good at this, I think you figure out not that we want to make people cry. I want to make sure the listeners know it is not our intent to torture mm -mm. people. We are not the dentist from Little Shop of Horrors. Um, <laughs> it's just like with processing comes pain, right? Yeah. And um, sometimes that stuff, you know, you figure out the ways that most people, human beings, avoid or like stuff down or whatever. And if you can like find the key, it, it doesn't take much to help them get like get there to unlock it. 
I think I wandered. I don't know if I answered that question or whatever was happening correctly, but um, the oh, the practice, right? Like that it looks so easy or it looks yeah, like we're yeah. doing nothing or it looks like we're just listening like, mm, yes, okay. And it's like, no, there's so much more happening, you know, so much more. What a beautiful explanation. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so for that. I Thank you. You're really making me think of these, like having to have conversations with a, you know, I mean, like a handful of clients at this point, because they feel discouraged that the only setting that they cry in is with me. So like part of them is kind of like, well, what are you doing to me? <laughs> or like, what is, oh, yeah, you know, and I, and I mean that like with all love for anybody who's listening to obviously, but you know, once you kind of explain, like, if there's never been a space that's been safe for you to cry mm -hmm. and you like, like I've had the time I've had experience where I start crying before therapy sessions because like my therapist is the only person who I've ever felt comfortable crying yes. and I just coming. <laughs> so yes. kind of explaining that for people that that is like so goddamn normal and like so natural and that mm -hmm. everything's working right. Cause they know like stuff's about to start flowing. Yeah. And, and that like when it surprises them, you know, I have so many clients who that thing will happen and I'll go, you know, what's, what's going on with the tears, right? Cause like, all I know is I asked a question and then it was immediate tears. So I want to understand a little more of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so often they'll be like, I don't even know why I'm crying. I'm like, okay, that's okay. Right. Sometimes we don't know why we're crying and that's okay. And then, you know, I'll kind of back up and we'll try to, to, to kind of get there together. But I think sometimes people are also to, to your point, Sarah, like, I don't even know why I'm crying in my therapist's office. It's like, she just tortures me. And then I just start crying or whatever, you know? And so I think to understand that that's, that's a normal thing too. So I spend a lot of time as I'm sure the two of you do saying like, oh yeah, that's normal. Oh my gosh. Lots of people feel that way. <laughs> yeah. And so many people have told them that it's not like crying is mm -hmm. that when really it's just a natural process to release emotions. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence mm -hmm. that it's actually really necessary and the fact yes. that you're doing it every week with me is not a bad thing it's like your mm -hmm. weekly workout absolutely yeah emily can you talk a little bit about your speaking engagements that you've done yeah um uh you know because of covid and stuff i haven't done as many lately um but i do presentations sometimes for like i don't know groups of people like um the kind of thing where like it's you know in the workplace and they're trying to boost morale or something but sometimes i'll do talks about like how to use improv skills in your everyday life and like how that can be really helpful um there is a, a colleague of mine who does this way more and probably better than i in boise idaho <laughs> her name is megan bryant and i was sort of inspired by her um to do this occasionally she does it very very regularly so if anybody in idaho needs presentation please call her um but also you know i just do i talk a lot about you know f like diet culture and fat liberation and what it means to like move away from diet culture um and so usually it's just you know i get hired to come talk to a group of people for whatever reason and i also you know because of comedy and just being a you know humorous person I think people really like that combination because I can be engaging and humorous while I may be presenting a more serious topic or, you know, that kind of thing. And then with my performing skills and, and stuff, you know, I have all kinds of theater games that I can use to um, work with people. But I, it kind of got started because um, 
I was asked to host, this is such a weird trajectory, but I was asked to host <laughs> um, a, a fashion competition. <laughs> I'm laughing because it was, um, it was this, this competition where people had to use like recycled materials to create fashion. And then I was like the host. And then there was judges that would like judge the, the fashion that was created or whatever. And um, somebody who had seen me do stand up was like, I think you'd be really good at this. Can you like host this thing? And I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds fun or whatever. Then somebody saw me host that. And then I got really fortunate and they were one of the people who was coordinating our independent TED event the next year, TEDx. And so then I hosted TEDx for two years in town. And then the third year I submitted to speak and I was chosen, my topic was chosen. And so then I got to speak at TEDx, um, which was incredible and, you know, a bucket list item to be yeah. able to say have a TED talk, especially because for many years I've been sarcastically like ranting about something and then saying, thanks for coming to my TED talk um, about this thing that I've been ranting about. And and now it's a real thing that's you can just be like, actually, amazing. just look at my TED talk. Yeah. <laughs> so <have> TED talk. <laughs> um, and then so people who saw me at TED you know, then reached out and were like, can you come talk to this group or, you know, can you tell them talk to my work or, you know, whatever. And so you know, that's the kind of speaking I do. The kind that I really like, you know, to do is I want to talk about ways that we can free ourselves as much as possible within the constraints of capitalism and white supremacy, um, you know, to try to thrive as best we can, you know, and from like a non, I would say it's like a more like, how do we, how do we uh, care for ourselves and how do we help each other interpersonally less of less of like a systemic level. I mean, I'm I've I'm so grateful for all the people doing like systemic work in those areas and I, you know, consume their content and try to do as much as I can to help, but I think mine is more about like a hey, um oppression exists and if you're in a marginalized group, you are being oppressed and oppression is traumatic and you know, here's some things we can do to try to help ourselves like knowing we're in a systemic, you know, oppressively place systemically oppressive place that was grammatically correct yeah there's so much micro level work that needs to be done and i i mean i a little bit of praise for that because i'm totally with you just like even in even in session if somebody is saying something themselves that has like a supremacist notion or has like mm -hmm. some, have some has some type of oppressive framework helping to dismantle that and then it gives them more opportunities to be happy and to be liberated themselves and it's i mean i think that the, the systemic work is is extremely important and I also think our micro level work is very important the two need to exist together um, and I love the idea of existing <laughs> within systems and to clarify and I might go on something that doesn't make sense here but to clarify there's a big difference between endorsing an oppressive system and existing within a system and being liberated so endorsing mm -hmm. an oppressive system is supporting you know like law enforcement that has like racist uh like has rooted in racism and will not improve unless they really own up to it but living mm -hmm. in capitalism and just trying to find a way to survive without really endorsing it and exploiting anybody yeah the game <laughs> yes mm -hmm. i actually just had an awesome conversation with one of my clients the other day because um so they're a, a white woman 
who is a business owner and part of like business organizations. And they were asking me, which I felt really grateful and really honored that they trusted me in this way. And I wasn't sure if they were just, you know, venting or sharing. And I was like, are you asking, you know, my thoughts? And, you know, they were like, yes, absolutely. And I said, okay. And their, their point was like, why are there, you know, why is there like women of color in business? Like, why is this a thing we're separating? You know, why, why wouldn't it just be like women in business or whatever? You know, why can't it just be the best, you know, woman or whatever? And so I had this awesome opportunity and it was like so wonderful. It felt great to be able to talk with my client about the historic reasons why we need to separate out and celebrate the fact that like women of color can thrive in business right? Because, his, you know, historically, all the all the stuff. And I had just finished reading this awesome Twitter thread about this, um, about farming, about like factory farming in the US, and how it had originally been like women's quote, women's work, right? Like, it's particularly with um, poultry, so like chickens, um, and that it had traditionally been like women's work. And they even women would try to sort of elevate the work that they were doing and try to like create more infrastructure and try to get money. But like their husbands and other men were like, why should I invest in this thing that's like women's work? And so they couldn't, right? And so poultry apparently, and I just learned this, pre-World War II was like a luxury meat. Chicken was like a treat or whatever. And I, I imagine maybe all meat, I don't know, I'd have to kind of look more into that. But then it was sort of like this idea that, oh, wow, like women are making all this money, like they're actually supporting families, raising chickens in this, you know, way of, you know, however they're doing it. And then the idea, like, of course, with so much of this that happens is, you know, men came in and they're like, oh, well, we want to make money at this, but they haven't had any of the experience or background in like, you know, animal husbandry and like feeding and caring for poultry. And so then it becomes this thing of like, oh, here, I'll like sell you this like, you know, package, this like farm or whatever. And here's some ways to sort of bump up the productivity of it, you know, quickly for more money and all of that thing, right? Which is then, so now we have this experience in the United States of all this, you know, factory farming of poultry. I mean, other things as well, but this was specific to that. And then, you know, if you go back far enough, it's like all we would have to do is like invest in this quote unquote women's work. And we could have like sustainably grown that infrastructure to where we wouldn't have maybe the factory farming concerns that we have now. Anyway, I had just like read this whole Twitter thread about it and it was fascinating and I was like mind blown about it. I mean, not shocked, but I had never heard it. And so I got to share that with my client and as a, like a business owner, she was like, oh wow okay and it was like this awesome light bulb moment and i thought man that's but that's the hard work right like i had to have been seeing her for enough time that she trusted me to talk about something that could potentially be threatening to her identity as a white person mm -hmm. and um and also i should call out the fact that as a white person myself i probably seemed like a safe source for that information and would probably most likely be believed more than like a person of color. Just like when fat people talk about being oppressed and marginalized as fat people, you know, like we are just like, oh, well, you just want an excuse to be fat. And then when like thin dietitians or physicians or researchers are like, this is a real thing. It's like, oh, wow, maybe we should pay attention to this whole idea of like 
anti-fat bias and like medical weight stigma and stuff. And so, you know, I think it was such a great opportunity. And also I recognize like the immense work that it takes to get to that point and how important those individual interactions are, you know, like I just really want to scream on the internet as much as everybody about all these things. And I mean, listen, I do, I do, but it's usually just like people I know because I'm thinking this is not going to change people, right? Like these conversations with clients, me trying to teach my brother what white privilege means, which I actually just had a conversation with him about a month ago about that. Um, you know, like, and, and him trusting me cause I'm his sister and he like knows that I'm not going to try to like hose him or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, bamboozle him or whatever. Um, but again, you know, it's like, you have to have credibility and with the people that you're talking to and it, it's so complex and it really, I don't know what my point was there, but just that it's possible, but man, it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm even hearing there too, that you're also sparing a person of color, the, the harm of having to explain to, to a white person why the, I mean, there's so many important points there, but that <laughs> yelling at me, like yeah. how, how it is the job of, of white people in certain spaces to mm-hmm. harm to, to people of color, um, by answering questions that they have the capacity to answer and you had the, yes, and you did. And the safety that you provided is so freaking. Yeah. Important. Yeah, I have way less risk, right, approaching that um, mm-hmm. than, um, you know, maybe a woman of color that's in one of her business groups or something that, you know, like maybe she would approach. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was grateful for that opportunity for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, inc- and this is probably a huge question, but incorporating, <laughs> um, you know, anti-diet culture into therapy Mm -hmm. and how you do that Uh, yeah again it's like a huge question it is a huge question i will try to uh answer it (laughs) succinctly although being succinct is not usually my strong suit anyone who knows me that's listening to this will attest to that um in in like second grade i found a report card from second grade and like in the little comments it said like emily's a great student very social exclamation (laughs) point which i'm pretty sure was just code for like she talked too much, right? Which, you know, it's fine. Because look, it's my career now. Yay! I'm <laughs> yeah. too much. But um, so anti-diet work. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that a lot of times people ref- are referred to me specifically from other clinicians or like just people I know in my personal life. Maybe they're referring a family member or a friend or something that know that I do anti-diet work and fat liberation, you know, work in my in the context of my practice. And so sometimes it's like over, it's like somebody comes to me and they're like, I'm fat and I want to not feel terrible anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's so subtle, right? It's like, it doesn't even come up overtly. They're coming to me for something totally different. There's some trauma background or they want to learn to set boundaries or whatever. And what will kind of sneak up is they will bring up something that's very much tinted, you know, like tinged by anti-fat bias. So for example, they'll say, you know, like I just had this interaction, you know, with my mom, like maybe they don't have good boundaries with mom or whatever. And it was so upsetting to me. Like, I just like, I went and got, you know, junk food and I ate the junk food and I'm like, let's talk about food and that it's not bad or good. 
unless it's poisoned or rotten. Don't eat that. You know, like I tell people, I'm like, listen, all food is fine. There's no bad food except for if it is poisoned or rotten. Don't eat that. Um, you know, and they usually laugh. Um, and one time I saw this infographic that made me laugh where it was like, bad food is only food that's, uh, food is only bad if it is spoiled, poisoned, or tried to rob you. <laughs> like that, why, like, that made me laugh so hard, the anthropomorphizing of food, you know, trying to- The hamburger coming. And yeah, exactly, yeah. the hamburger. Yeah. Um, so, you know, then I'll have a conversation where I'll be like, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Like me saying that all food is okay, that, you know, McDonald's is not- quote unquote, bad for you? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, isn't it bad for you? You know, and then and then it becomes a more of an educational thing. So sometimes I'm just sort of like gently introducing that. Um, and let me tell you, people are very resistant. Even people who actively come to me wanting to change their relationship with their body and move away from diet culture are so resistant. And it's because, and I use these words very intentionally, we are brainwashed if you, from the minute we are born, we are brainwashed, indoctrinated, whatever cult language you want to use to believe that there's good food and bad food, that there is a moral component to what we eat and whether we exercise or not. And those, as we know, like that is information that runs deep because when our little, you know, sponge brains are growing, it's like they take in every bit of information and now it's like a fact that we're measuring things against as we grow, you know? And mm -hmm. so that's work that takes a long time to undo. And, and if anybody here is listening has worked with or experienced disordered eating or eating disorders, you know, that's such a contributor. If my first formative experience of eating mayonnaise was that uh, it's full of fat and bad for you, Anytime I encounter mayonnaise ever, probably well into my adulthood, if I have not done work to reprogram that, I'm going to be like, ooh, I probably shouldn't have that. It's just like this immediate response. And whether that influences like an eating disorder or whether that influences um, just like, I, I struggle with this because I feel like a lot of dieting is disordered eating. But anyway, um, you know, whether that just influences like a lifetime of dieting and like and like weight fluctuations, which we know, we know, we know leads to higher weighted bodies, right? More medical problems than just like being a fat person. Mm -hmm. it's, it happens so young is, I guess, my point. And so so even people who actively want to change their relationship to food, to their body, to exercise, uh, it takes a lot. You know, it's a lot of work um, on their part, and I'm happy to do that work with them, but it can be really challenging. Yeah. I would also argue that that most diets are disordered eating um, or, okay. lead, or lead to it. Yeah. I yes. mean, as someone who was on the diet train for a long time, like recovering from that is like, whoa, there's something definitely I was not listening to my body at all. And now yeah. I don't know what it's saying when it's saying it um, and like rediscovering, oh, I enjoy eating this and it's not a punishment mm -hmm. food or it's not like a, you know, it, yeah. it is so it's so ingrained in us from a young age that that stuff's OK. Yes. And encouraged, right? Like encouraged. Um, you know, it's, I, I can, I can remember the moment for my own work, for my own self, 
when I had figured out like, oh, wow, I've made some progress here in terms of intuitive eating. And so I'll tell you what that moment was and how I realized it. So I have to back up a little bit. Probably since I can remember, at least my like since maybe high school when I started paying attention to this, I don't know. I have never been a fan of salads. I just don't really like them. <laughs> you know, like veggies I love. Like roasted vegetables, I could probably eat my weight in asparagus um, if I didn't get sick from that. <laughs> but it's <laughs> um, And so, but like a salad, I was just like, ugh, salads, gross, lat salads, you know, whatever. I just hated them. And so I would like see them on a menu and I'd be like, ah, salad. Um, and it was just like a thing. I was just like, I don't know, I just don't like salads. I'm not a salad person. <clears throat> Fast forward uh, to, I don't know, this was several years, probably five or six years ago. And I had already been doing this work for many years for myself. And we sit down at this restaurant and I pick up the menu. And it was like the first time I've ever looked at a menu that I can remember where I didn't sort of like note the salad section and skip it. It was like everything was just equal opportunity on this menu. And I just looked at everything and I was like, what sounds good? And the thing that sounded so good to me was like this salad and French fries. And that's what I was like, I don't know. That's just... That's what I want. That's what tastes, that's what sounds good right now. And um, I remember ordering and whoever was with me, I don't remember what it was, they were like, you're getting a salad? I was like, yeah, I really want it. I don't know why, but I do. And that was like the moment. I mean, I can, it's like so formative. I can remember where I was that I was like, oh, I think it's working. Because I actually looked at a menu as completely neutral in terms of like, there's no bad food on it, but also I don't have to like skip the salad section. And that's when I realized like, oh, I don't hate salads. I just really resented being told I should only be eating salads because I was fat. And so then I decided I'm never eating a salad again because I want to live a real life, you know, like a full human yeah. being eats other things. And now, I mean, sometimes I do crave it and I'll get salads whenever, you know, but it was such an interesting turning point for me that I was like, oh, I guess I thought I hated salads. I don't think I do. Yeah. I think I hated, you know, like diet culture. What's what that? A what a natural response to people just like, you know, metaphorically and like literally trying to shove an idea down your throat. <laughs> yes. So Can you? I know. And you can also say no to this. Can you dispel some positive thinking that our listeners may have about Noom? Oh God. Wait, thank you. Good response. <laughs> I, I, I will go out and say that I have used Noom and it wasn't that long ago. So um, I think I'm open okay. to hearing this. Only, yes. But it's only new that we are all kind of realizing, oh, they just have good marketing. <laughs> They're still- yeah, Their marketing is really, very good it marketing. is really good. Like it still yeah, works it on me now. And I'm like, wait a minute. Stop. I mean, that's just, that's, and it's nothing about you. That's you yeah. being, that's them using studies. And yes, having, yes. Yeah. And I, folks, I mean, yes, mm -hmm. I could go on, but are you up to dispelling some positive thinking about Noom? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I will unequivocally say Noom is a diet. Ding, ding, ding. Mm -hmm. Noom is a diet. Um, Noom is a diet. And uh, here's the thing about it. There's such an allure, right, to the idea that if we just change some of our thoughts, some of our behaviors, that we are going to be able to reach our goals in our life. And I think that is true for goals that are achievable. 
if I want to go back to school, right? Like I, I didn't go to grad school until 10 years after I graduated from undergrad. If I want to go back to school and get my master's degree, I can change some of my habits, maybe my financial habits, maybe change how early I get up in the morning to do homework and this and that, right? Which I will tell you, I woke up a lot earlier in grad school than I do now, but um, we can do that, right? We can change some of our habits in order to reach this goal that is achievable because we have seen it happen. We have enough research to show that many people who start graduate school continue graduate school and then finish graduate school. Not all of them, but most of them, right? Or a lot of them. We also have a bunch of research that tells us that the human body is number one, far too complex for weight loss to be an achievable goal. Number two, it's not an achievable goal because like 95% of the time people gain all that weight back even if they lose it or they don't really lose it at all. So diets don't work. It's not the same as working towards an achievable goal. And so what Noom is doing is taking the idea of a restricted calorie diet to my understanding Full disclosure, I have not utilized Noom, so I don't know exactly the protocol, but I have read information of people who had signed up for it with like screenshots and information and stuff. So from the information that I have, it basically uses the idea of a restricted calorie or restricted, I think it's mostly restricted calorie diet, um, and then packaging it in this way that's like, no, all you have to do is change your habits and your thoughts and use a psychological approach, but we can't psychology ourselves out of diets don't work, but you should still try it because it's a moral failing if you don't. Also, I just saw something and I don't remember where I saw it literally like yesterday. So it's very fresh, but I don't remember where it was. I should start writing down sources because I'd be way more effective. But anyway, <laughs> that they actually found that Noom, they somebody did this deep dive into their data and like it, they are not tailoring it to any particular person's body height, weight, yes. anything. It's like men get X number of calories and then women get X number of calories or whatever, which also doesn't account for non-binary people. So I don't know if they cover that at all, but it's like that's just a so. diet that's literally just a diet just a diet just a diet and diets don't work and we know this mm -hmm. we know this overwhelmingly there we've to quote the kids we've been knowing we've been knowing from like the 70s and 80s that diets do not work and i'm going to sound like a real tinfoil hat person here but like there is too much money to be made from convincing mm -hmm. people that they will work and it is their moral obligation to pursue thinness and so of course they don't want people to know they don't work because they would stop making money right so next time you are at your job and a doctor comes in to take your blood pressure take a blood test weigh you just so they could see how your health is for insurance it is all part of that system too because insurance yes is mixed up mixed up in this this malicious oh. bag yeah. yeah insurance and and noom noom does say there's no bad food except that they rank food as green yellow and red right right which is contradictory because all food is if we're t if we're looking at green everybody knows what green yellow yellow and red mean red is bad red is stop green is go and if you right? don't stop you're doing something wrong right? yes like wrong you know i mean literally in the context of driving illegal if you do not stop that's a crime <laughs> no and, and i was i was in the supermarket with my new map open 
just like zapping things to see if they're green, yellow, red. Can I eat this? Can I eat this? Can I eat this? Can I eat this? Mm-hmm. Oh, this bread is green. That means I can eat as much as I want of it. Not like it kind of like, wh- do I even like it? What is right. it? And like, I don't like Dave's bread. I don't like it. It's not <laughs> <That's good>. okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's you people don't have who to love like Dave's it. bread, <laughs> but it's not awesome to me. I don't like Dave's bread. And like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just took a while to be like, this is, I don't like this. So the product of restricting too often, right? It's like, oh, I can't eat this. I'm going to eat all of it. Yes. And then, oh my gosh, all the time. Yes. Slip up, everyone. There's air quotes. I'm going to slip up and I'm just going to eat everything because I'm starving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I have clients that I'm working with on disordered eating, because um, I don't see clients in my private practice, I generally see clients who are maybe showing some disordered eating and it usually comes up later because they've come to me for something else or people who are in recovery or like stepping down from a higher level of care, right? Like I used to work in a, in a um, agency where we did uh, intensive outpatient and like partial hospitalization eating disorder work. But now I just kind of see people who are kind of in recovery. And what I, one of the things that I <laughs> tell clients all the time who maybe it has come up that they're dieting a lot or they want to move away from that. I'll be like, what is the thing that you want to eat that you feel like you can't, right? And let's say it's like cookies or something. And I'll be like, okay, so for the next week until I see you, I want you to do as many cookies as you want. And their eyes get as big as saucers. And they're like, I can't, I can't do that. And I'm like, why, why can't you do that? And they're like, I, I won't stop. And I'm like, okay, for one week, I want you to eat as many cookies as you can. And I promise you one week, it won't kill you, right? Like humans are very resilient. Like I want you to eat as many cookies as you want. And, and every time, do you know what happens? The next week they come back and I go, how did it go? And they're like, well, the day after we met, I went to the store and I bought all these cookies and I, and I ate like so many of them. I just like sat and I like ate like 10 of them or whatever. And I'm like, okay. And then what about like later? And they're like, oh, well then the next day I ate a couple of them, but like, there's still a bunch of cookies sitting in my house. I'm like, what happened? And they're like, well, I ate so many of them. And then I was like, I don't really want these anymore. Or like, I wanted a couple the next day, but then it was like, I'd eaten so many and I don't know, it wasn't exciting anymore. I'm like, yeah because you're not restricting because I just gave you permission to eat whatever you wanted and it was cookies and your body was like, Hey, thanks. We're done with that now. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it doesn't matter. You know, the, one of the things that comes up so much is people are like, well, if you encourage people to eat any foods and there's no like rules around the foods, like what you just want people what to eat ice cream. That's all they're going to eat is ice cream. And I'm like, if somebody wants to eat nothing but ice cream, you know, what's going to happen they will start feeling like absolute shit, not because ice cream's bad for you, but because ice cream has very limited nutrients and our bodies want to thrive and they need a diversity of nutrients to do that. So yeah, eventually they're going to be like, I mean, ice cream is great, but I don't feel great. I need to eat something else. And if we listen, that's the intuitive part, right? We've talked about if we listen, our body will tell us What's the thing that we want? Well, it turns out I wanted a salad and French fries. When I removed the value, the moral obligation to eat salads, right? Or to do good or whatever, quote unquote, my just listen to my body's like, that sounds good based on what I'm reading. And also the fries sound good and you should eat both of them. And I was like, okay. Yeah. I went on a little bit of a, whew, got a little heated there, a little rant. It's okay. I think that's what Noom does to us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so yes, Noom is a diet. Please, please don't use it. Yeah. If you're going to give somebody your money, buy um, 
what we don't talk about when we talk about fat and read that by Aubrey Gordon instead that on our resources page and I mean health at every size um, is a good tool I would say um, for the kind of I don't know technical information about that but there are some intuitive um, eating books as well that you can get that are that are good but I would just say if you want if somebody's listening and they want to start with their sort of like I want to rebuke diet culture and move away from it like what we don't talk about when we talk about fat by Aubrey Gordon is a fantastic resource also maintenance phase podcast oh so beautiful so Aubrey Gordon the author of that book and Michael Hobbs who was previously a writer for the Huffington Post they co-host that and they basically debunk like quote wellness culture but a lot of it is of course to do with diets because diet culture is so insidious um that's a great resource uh they did a recent episode on what they call zombie statistics which is just like all these statistics that aren't they're not real (laughs) like they seem real and people quote them in things all the time but they're not actually based in like good you know, robust research at all. It's like they're extrapolated from all kinds of weird stuff. And um, anyway, yeah, I would say that's a good place to start. Yeah, don't give your money to Noom, please. Or 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 WW, which is just Weight Watchers. Don't, you know, or Jenny Craig. Save that money. I don't know. Go to the store. Buy what looks good. Eat it. Mm-hmm. Drink lots of water. That's good for you, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 End of list. That's, that's <laughs> just go to the store. Go go into go buy yourself a snack. And just know <laughs> as someone who's like going who is like on the journey and I'm not all the way there yet, that it is insidious. That there are so many thoughts that you have that come from the, the from the brainwashing of diet culture that like oh, you yes. don't even know. And it was interesting you said like it comes up later on when you're working with clients. Because mm-hmm. it's just so okayified, you know, yes. in in our culture that like, oh yeah, but like I also hate my body like a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, and like I hate everything I eat, and like it's yeah, but also this, you know, um, it's not contributing to depression and anxiety at all. Um, no, no. Why would it? It couldn't be that like every time I you know go to eat something, my brain is doing a thousand calculations to figure out whether I quote deserve to eat it or not oh no that's definitely not impacting the rest of my mental health or how i interact with humans or whether i can be like be you know like if i can be relaxed at work when there's like a birthday party you know i mean just eat the cake right but like that's so easy to say like just eat the cake okay great what happens when eating the cake in my youth meant i was scolded or even like actively abused by a parent or caretaker because they were so invested in diet culture what happens if every time i see a family member a certain family member they comment on the size of my body and so now i worry about going to holidays and like family events and i mean these it is you are so correct it is so insidious and that's why it takes a long time to do this work whether it's in, you know, therapy or on our own, you know, between sessions and stuff. And yeah, it's like, it's also, or like I've been restricting for so long. Like I see this pile of old bagels and I'm like, I got to eat two of them because like I, I, that's because like it's here and like, I don't allow myself bagels, but they're free. So like, then that means they're a little bit allowed. So Mm -hmm. like, then I eat something I don't enjoy. Right. And like, 
and I just feel bad about myself in a hunt like in a like a total circle is mm-hmm. like I'm, I was not validating myself at all in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The The restriction binge cycle is not I think a lot of people don't recognize that cycle outside of a diagnosed eating disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, and restriction and binging in terms of like an eating disorder like bulimia, but lots of people like intermittent fasting is basically a restrictive diet, which I have done for for like two years. Yeah, it's very popular now the intermittent fasting thing. But here's the thing: your body uh, already does that when you're sleeping. So you don't have to do that. Like it already does that. And yeah, I mean it, yeah, it's, it's a restricted, it's a restriction cycle, right? Basically any restrictive diet is some kind of restrictive cycle. And then when people are like, oh, today is my cheat day, you know, like they're doing a certain diet and then like Sundays they can eat whatever they want. That's a restriction binge cycle. It's just, Mm -hmm. you're binging on a very specific day each week. I mean, it, it might not be to the level of like a diagnosed eating disorder type of binge, right? It's not like, but a, it's close. It's, di- it's, you know, a specific binge, but like, that's the cycle is I'm restricting myself for X amount of time. And then I'm going to allow myself to indulge quote unquote, or binge for a specific amount of time. I mean, that's like the whole thing with, with, uh, intermittent fasting is like, you don't yeah. eat for this long and then you can eat whatever you want for eight hours mm-hmm. and then you're yeah. fine. And our brains notice mm-hmm. those patterns, even if it is like a cheat day. Right. I mean, there was a yep. certain point in my in my like cigarette smoking too, that I was down to like a cigarette on Saturday or cigarettes on Saturdays and Sunday nights, just, you know, or Friday and Saturday nights when I'd be drinking. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm drinking every night. I can't keep, (laughs) obviously that's, obviously that's a problem that I need to address. And that's, I can't keep smoking, but my body would still crave cigarettes by the time the week like that. Um, yeah. 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 So like the whole thing about intermittent fasting, right? Like fasting and then you can eat anything you want or whatever as much as you want for like eight hours and what we know for the most part about um nutrition and i am not in any way like a dietitian or a nutritionist okay i just am very lucky to have worked with a really good one and uh when i was at my agency and i you know i've learned a lot of this from colleagues and stuff but what we know is like our body goes through food anywhere between like two and four hours we really should be eating very regularly and it doesn't have to be a huge meal regularly, but we need to be fueling ourselves every few hours. And so like when we're sleeping, yeah, our bodies are already fasting. We don't need to modify that. Right. Like, and this is why a lot of like, you know, people will eat later in the evening. Maybe dinner is like the biggest portion or whatever, because they need fuel for the nighttime. Contrary to popular belief, even when you were lying prone, and unconscious your body is burning calories it needs fuel you you need a specific amount of fuel literally to just like make sure that you breathe and your heart works and your kidneys work and it's filtering blood and stuff yeah and i think there's a lot of people who don't think of that right they're like oh my gosh if i'm eating this number of calories i have to burn that many i'm like what what do you what do you think those calories are for if you don't eat enough your brain doesn't work it's really because to internalize capitalism too, right? If I'm the oh. amount of productivity I have means that yes. higher, so the amount of time and energy I'm putting into dieting and you know whatever whatever phase of disordered eating I'm in, then mm-hmm. I'm going to get that reward of thinness. Yes, yes, that absolutely. Oh yeah, capitalism and diet culture are like bosom buddies, man. Bosom buddies. It, well, it's a it's a it's a 
the little triangle. It's a love triangle with racism or white supremacy. You know, it's like diet culture, white supremacy, and capitalism are just all like a real happy family living together. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, so one of the things I talk about with clients all the time, even if I'm not working on any kind of food stuff with, if they're like, I don't know why, I just, you know, I've been working really hard on these skills and I just kind of freaked out and I don't know what happened. I'm like, did you eat? What do you mean? I mean, did you eat? When was the last time you had eaten? Because our human beings are wired for survival. We are wired to survive, right? Yeah. And that means that if we have a limited amount of calories to burn, we're going to prioritize survival over higher level functions, right? If our brain only has, you know, enough calories, essentially, you know, it's more complicated than that. But if our body only has like enough calories or whatever to like run our essential functions to make sure that we are living and breathing and stuff, it doesn't, it's not going to prioritize like mood, <laughs> monitoring our mood and like using all of our coping skills and like cognitive, you know, like function that's higher. It's not going to do that. It's going to go for the thing that's going to help us survive until we get our next meal, which is, which is then going to limit the skills that we know that we maybe have, but because we're hungry, right? Or we don't have enough fuel. Our brain is like, sorry, man, can't do it. Yeah. Got to survive, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, that was something I just noticed recently, like before dinner, I was like, you know, having meltdowns, I was crying and my anxiety was super high because like I had been trained to be like, well, you don't want to eat anything before dinner. Cause you're going to spoil your dinner, mm-hmm. but it's like, well, but I just, I could eat now cause I'm hungry and then I'll eat when my dinner and I don't have to eat all of it because like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it took me talking to my therapist and being like, huh, I noticed that I'm having panic attacks at this time every day <laughs> while I'm waiting for dinner or while, you know, before. But mm-hmm. so it seems like that's a good time for a snack, mm-hmm. um, you know, but in the past, I just like fast until dinner. You know, you had lunch, you have a snack at three yeah. and then that's it. Yeah. And that and I think you make a good point, right? How many of us were trained like you'll spoil your dinner? Having like, what does that mean? It's not going to spoil your dinner. That's not, yeah. you know, what is spoiling it? Then it's like, oh, now I have mac and cheese for tomorrow. Hooray. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Very good point. You just don't, you don't have to eat all of it. Or maybe you do. Maybe your body needs a lot, yeah. today, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of it is because like, Joanna, you're pregnant. So like, <laughs> it's yeah. like you need food. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, and it's so like that just, that literally just came up, I think like two weeks ago for me that I was like, huh? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, you know, like it's a good, I'm, I'm appreciate that you share that because sometimes it feels like it's right in front of us, but then until it's like pointed out, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't connect. Right. Which is why I tell people all the time, I'm like, yeah, you can benefit from therapy. Everyone can benefit from therapy. You know why? You're in your head. You can't see it clearly. <laughs> I'm in my head. I can't see it clearly, you know? No. Yeah. So so big takeaways, you know, talk about this in session with your clients. Well, educate yourself on it first, then talk about yes. it with clients. Um, don't fall into the trap of moralizing, uh, exercise and diet and balanced, balanced diet and all the other words that we are 
trying to move the hell away from. If you have yes. access to it, also having practitioners that are uh, like haze oriented, right? Yeah, Maybe yeah. Possible. Try to have these people on your treatment team. Mm -hmm. um, and also they could very much have that on their website and then you get into their office and they are not. So you have the right to also like seek out care that is uh, yes. you know, not shaming you into being something that's impossible mm -hmm. and that you're not and is, yeah, doesn't exist. Yeah. Also, if possible, if you have a dietitian or a nutritionist, finding one that is uh, weight neutral is really important, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, I jokingly talk about sneak attacking insurance companies mm -hmm. um, because I'm like, listen, almost all insurance will pay for a dietitian. And I think the reason they will pay for it is because they want them to give you weight loss advice. Um, but the thing is like, they don't have to know that you're seeing a weight neutral dietitian, like, ha ha, fooled you, but that's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they're going to pay for it anyway. So if we can get one up on the insurance companies, take it. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even get on my soapbox about insurance and I won't, but just, know I know we didn't even talk about exercise too, which like is as insidious as restricting and yeah, yeah. which I will. I Which we could talk for quickly. another like three million <laughs> yes. hours about yes. exercise. I will say this. One of the tenets of health at every size is about joyful movement. And for listeners, if you want to get an introduction, uh, if you want some videos where you can start moving in a way that's going to be the videos are completely void of any diet culture bullshit. Um, there's a website called join. It's J O Y N dot C O. There's no M. I don't know why, but it's join.co. And they have tons of instructors that are very diverse in their gender expression, their race, like their body size, you know, body type, everything. And they do all kinds of videos, everything from like chair workouts, stretching, yoga, weightlifting, functional fitness. There's a functional fitness series that I love. And it's literally like, hey, you want to live your life in a way that makes it easier. Like here's functional fitness stuff. You're not trying to be a weightlifter. Cool. Here's just functional stuff. And so like movement should be joyful. You do not have to torture yourself to benefit from exercise. It actually takes a minimal amount to keep your body healthy, to keep your heart pumping, your lungs going, your bones and muscles healthy and you should enjoy it and that will be really hard anybody i'm looking at the camera like they can see me i don't know why i'm doing that but <laughs> it will be really hard at first. <laughs> it will be so hard at first to reprogram the idea that exercise is supposed to be punishment it will be hard but stick with it it is possible to find things that you actually really love that you had no idea because somebody used them as punishment mm -hmm. you know or compulsory and so I think join is a good place to start where you it's like fun. There's little dance classes. Some of them are like five minutes long, like really quick, just introductions. And I really think it's a great resource. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And you answered all, I mean, our last question was going to be like, what about resources? But oh, we've covered, we've yeah. covered that. Definitely. We, we didn't talk too much of the intersection of white supremacy and, um, anti-fat bias but if people are interested that the book that you had mentioned i think sarah in the beginning was fearing the black body is a great resource about the how how anti-fat bias is very rooted in racism and white supremacy um and i will just say you know as i'm a white presenting person i don't experience the same discrimination that like a fat black woman would experience mm -hmm. um 
And I'm aware of that, right? It is definitely, you know, I mean, medical stigma, right? Anti-fat bias in medical settings, fat people receive poorer health care than thin-bodied people. People of color receive poorer health care than white people. And so if you put the intersection there, like black women of color specifically receive exceedingly poor health care. And especially in terms of um, childbirth, right? Pregnancy and childbirth, they have much higher rates of complications and and everything. And that's a travesty. It's disgusting. And that's why uh, like and- the U.S. is like one of the number, like it has like a very high uh you know, maternal mortality rate. Yes. Which, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting, right? It and is, it's, yeah, it's disgusting. It's because we're adding that piece to white supremacy is present in everything in the United States and other places in the world, too. I'm not saying it's not, but white supremacy, we are a nation that is like culturally founded on white supremacy. I mean, not just culturally, like legally as well. And then also anti fat bias, which is combined in with racism, white supremacy has a significant impact on everything, including the the medical system. And that is disgusting. It, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, <laughs> I know we're running out of time, but I want to say I'm like talking with other women who are going to give birth around the same time I am. And a, a mother who was recently told her, you know, her baby was large the 75th percentile or something and her doctor was like you're gonna need to diet and you're gonna we're gonna have to deliver early and like it just it showed me what my privilege was that I can I can choose to go to really great places my baby's 93rd percentile and they're like everything's great everything Mm -hmm. looks great but like her doctor was just so rooted in the past and like I I just I was like I'm so sorry this is your experience I'm gonna share Mm -hmm. you mine because she was like I think I need a second opinion and I was like I think you need one too um yeah but it's just like it's so I I mean insidious is our word but it's like it's disgusting correct one yeah Yeah. and yeah it's just everywhere you know and it can be really overwhelming um yeah, like your baby's fine. You don't need to diet. Your baby's fine. You should not diet when you're pregnant. No, don't do no. that. No, please, no. Well, no. I think keeping in mind too that like every like diversity and inclusion and like uh, sexual harassment seminars, everything that is put out with intent to make things more inclusive is actually just trying to make things, just trying to pull things into the supremacist mindset. So that's exactly 100%. what that's exactly what Noom does is they they like say out loud, we see that this is a problem. We want to bring you into our niche and they're just bringing you into the same thing. Yep. So please, I, I mean, you may notice that after diversity inclusion meetings and after sexual harassment meetings, uh, racism and sexual harassment goes up <laughs> very similar to how the the thought of um doing a doing healthy dieting again these like Mm -hmm. video video chat air quotes it's just going to bring more emily as you were talking about more disordered eating yes going to be a response and uh this is not i mean it's somewhat related to what you just said somewhat apropos of nothing but i feel like i need to make it statement if your employer incentivizes you to have lower insurance rates or get paid more because your bmi is lower that's discrimination mm-hmm. and bmi is incorrect bmi is absolutely do you want to know, you know who does that whole foods I know it's yeah by Amazon, so it's not. 
I don't know. I don't know if it's changed because I I worked that I worked there before Amazon, but you could get 30% off instead of 20% off if you had, um, a air quotes, healthy BMI, um, and like got checked up by their doctor, you could get 30% off instead of 20. Oh, BMI is a garbage. It's garbage. It's been disproven a million times. I mean, I know you two know this, but I'm just saying all your listeners, BMI is garbage. Aubrey Gordon talks about that. And what we don't talk when we talk about fat. Um, and, uh, also interesting if you're listening and you are a person who is interested in social justice and uh, changing the legal system, there are only two places that I'm aware of right now that may have changed where you two like states, think it's washington and michigan i could be incorrect about that there might be more now where you are protected and you cannot be fired or discriminated against because you're fat anywhere else in this country united states somebody can literally be like we're not going to hire you or we're going to fire you because you are too fat that's the thing that's happening that is a real thing and i'm not saying like oh there's no other you know prejudice or or discrimination happening like obviously it's like one piece of it, right? But but if you get fired in m- numerous states, is to my understanding, where if you are a person of color and they fire you because they're like, well, you're too ethnic for our demographic or something, like you have legal recourse to say, you discriminated against me. You're not allowed to do that, right? But if they're like, well, you are too fat and you don't like look the part to sell this clothing that we sell, um, or, you know, makeup or whatever, like they can just say like, you're too fat to sell our stuff in most places. And you have no legal recourse to say like, you can't do that to me. And that includes like, if you gain weight, like you start working there and then you gain weight over time, they could be like, you're too fat. Now you have to leave. Yikes. Or you have to go work in the back. Right. Yes. Or yes. Or you have to go work like out of the view of customers mm-hmm. or patients or whatever. And I mean, most places, that's true. There's only like two states where it's not. So we should do something about that. <laughs> that would be good, you know? Yeah, and like how, how like, I'm part of my French, but how fucked up is that as like 17-year-old trying to get a job at the mall? Yeah. And they're like, you're going to work in the back. Because um, mm-hmm. that's yep. what happened to me. Um, and it's like. <sighs> Sorry. That is it's okay. Up. <laughs> it's really fucked up. Yeah, but, but it's, it's just not, like not okay. And but, but I mean, you got through it, so there's like, yeah. I mean, like I'm glad I didn't work at Hollister, you know, in the in the long term. Glad I didn't work there. Sure. Uh, but <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. I'm just so happy that there are that this is becoming slowly but surely that this is becoming mm-hmm. like mainstream conversation. I mean, yeah, because it's horrifying. We're not just we're not just talking, and it should be enough that you just have like that people are just that there is size diversity and that we are appreciative of each other that should be Mm -hmm. like enough but it's also good that we're like pointing to these like really like life-threatening financial security threatening housing security threatening issues that are coming up there's a ambulance Mm -hmm. that start like yes again like how insidious is it is that it's at the mall in trumbull connecticut you know Mm -hmm. that like you know, this happened. There's actually a really good documentary about Abercrombie and Fitch and their hiring um, process. I can't remember what it is, but it's really good. Um, so interesting. The rise and yeah. fall of Abercrombie, right? Because I, I remember yeah. in high school hearing rumors that they were not hiring pe- like teenagers of color, people of color. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of went out of my mind because the mm. mall and Abercrombie and Fitch went out of my mind. But apparently right. it was actually very much happening. Yeah. Yikes. 
Yeah. And they were, you know, they were hiring people as models. So that way they could discriminate. Um, right. Which is, yeah. Ugh. Because God forbid somebody with, um, you know, melanin can't uh, wear your clothing appropriately or whatever. Yeah, that's nonsense. I mean, it's, you know. yeah. Truly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we have one like... more question. Okay. <laughs> do you want to do our would you rather question? Is that what you're talking about, Sarah? Yes. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, first, would you rather uh, just pick a number, five or seven? It's very important. Yeah. Those are both my favorite numbers. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the the cards have I'm going to say seven. Let's do seven. Yeah. Okay. All right. They, I don't know why these cards have numbers on them, but they do. Okay. <laughs> I think it's because you're supposed to play Uno with them or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then, like, also answer the question. Um, so would you rather live in a mansion and work every day or live in a shack working one day? Working is, one day, like, what, a week? They're working one day a week, I guess, yeah. yeah. This is a very MASH-centered question. It is. I was just going to say, a shack? That is straight yeah. out of the middle school MASH days. Um, the, these are sort of for teens, <laughs> uh i just you just unlocked a core memory where (laughs) the vehicles in mash were like a bike a lamborghini like how did i even know what that was i have no idea i don't know how to spell that (laughs) me either um or probably like a like a dodge caravan was probably the other option um would i rather well i'll tell you right now i really hate to clean so that mansion is probably too big. Also, I like horror movies, but like then I get terrified and I can't be alone. Um, so I probably would do better in a shack. Yeah, too much space where it's dark and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. What's that sound? Why is that do door that. movie? Yeah, I, like I like horror as like a, a genre of film, right? Good horror, I think, is great film. But man, I don't know what I'm thinking. I have to watch it during the day with like all the windows open and lights on and stuff. Um, yep. So I'm going to go with a shack, I guess, and uh, work one day a week. And then I can spend the rest of the days uh, fixing up my shack. Yeah, Making... or gardening around the shack. Ooh. Now I'm excited I mean, about this. Yeah, you make it look good, you know, slap some paint on it build a I'm, deck i don't know yeah i'm thinking of like a like a like a cottage by the sea which is probably a little yeah. bit yeah but like yeah so I, that's what i would do like too. yeah what kind of shack is this is this like a shack from a bob ross painting that's like clearly dilapidated or whatever mm. or is this like a cottage for some reason i'm thinking of the <laughs> if you've seen the show midnight mass i'm thinking of, oh my god <laughs> i'm thinking of the houses on there oh, no. for some reason <laughs> Like they could use some good, you know, keeping up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's also like nice on this haunted island or whatever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you I have to you have to deal with some spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, some vampires. But I mean, other than that, you know, great on the sea. Yeah, just like fill your attic with garlic. You're good. <laughs> the yeah, sheriff yeah. is super handsome. You're fine. Yeah. I also think that people living in a mansion and working every day is like the actual existence of some people who mm-hmm. are like yes 
And no, thank you. So Shaq, 100%, I'll garden around it. I'll fix it up maybe, but I'll also just, uh, I mean, right now your people are selling literal shacks for the price of mansions. You know, uh, absolutely, yes. Search, so yeah, maybe I can. Yeah, if I've got like a TV yeah. and yarn. I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> who was it? I don't remember who said this quote. I've just seen it like probably, you know, like replayed on TikToks, but um, what was it? Somebody asked somebody, what's your dream job? And they're like, dream job, darling. I do not dream of labor. <laughs> I was like, Thank you. yeah, I don't, I don't live in the shack and work one day a week. I do not dream of labor. Although I do really love what I do. I think I would just probably do less of it if it didn't have to like, you know, sustain me or whatever. Yeah. That's yeah. a dream situation for my, my husband and I, it's just me working, mm -hmm. like seeing 13 people a week and then him not having to do a ridiculous grueling 50 hour 40 to 50 yeah. hour week and us just like gardening the rest of the time <laughs> yeah yeah or like going on trips yeah do i have a lamborghini with this shack <laughs> maybe good. yeah who I knows mean, what mash will probably get not probably not great for like you know mileage but no you know yeah italian car I don't know. maybe maybe i would do the dodge caravan i guess <laughs> um yeah I mean, yeah. maybe my first, the first car I ever drove was my parents' Dodge Caravan that had the wood paneling on the side. Nice. And I think Dumb and Dumber had just come out. So we called it the Shaggin' Wagon, which in retrospect as teenagers was maybe not the best thing to call a van that you're driving your friends around in. But anyway, you know. My parents had a minivan called the Love Machine. So I'm with you there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Very inappropriate. Oh my gosh. My goodness. All right. Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. Um, yes, we can, this is delightful. We, yeah, we should talk again because there's so much more stuff we can talk about. Um, you know, we can do our own mashes if we want. Um, <gasps> that would be delightful. I haven't played mash in ages. Yeah, just remembering on bus rides, just those. Y'all can yep. teach me how to play mash because I... Have you never played mash, Sarah? I think I, I like would observe it. It was like one of those weird things where I didn't think I was allowed to play because my religious household was so... Oh, okay. oh like it might be witchcraft or something. That's I get it. Fine. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. there's like I mean, a spiral thing. I, yeah, I get it. I'd love to mm -hmm. learn. I mean, not even that, just like... Stealing in numerology. Anything is <laughs> yeah, anything is sus if it has to do, if it's outside of this. Yeah, sure. Tiny, tiny yeah, no, book, I get yeah. that. Um, well, I, mean, I, it's a pleasure. I mean, I'm even thinking like, like a series, you know, I think it'd be, it'd be great to have you back if you're interested. Oh, yeah. I would love to. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. This was delightful. Thank you. Yay. Yeah, absolutely. Right, totally uh, worth getting up early on a Tuesday morning. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod. On Twitter at TNDPod1, one as in the number one, or visit our website at tndpodcast.com. Uh, we also have another way to reach us. It's patreon.com slash tndpodcast. We've got um, bonus episodes. We've got, you know, polls that you can, poll, like P-O-L-E-S, like for voting. I don't know why I had like trouble with that um and uh so much more um you can head on to patreon.com slash tnd podcast if you would like to be a guest on the show head on over to our instagram and our link tree there there is a a link to um a google doc that you can give all your information to us if you would just like to talk to us you can send us an email at therapist next door at gmail.com that's therapist plural next door at gmail.com sarah do you have anything to plug 
Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Joanna, double plug that Patreon support us so we can continue to bring you awesome content from awesome clinicians and clinician adjacent jobs. Uh, check out teletherapywithsarah.com forward slash blog for biweekly posts with the lives of professional millennials from working class backgrounds, undoing classism and sexism and racism Yay! every step of the way. Um, I also just opened an Etsy shop called Millennial in Oh yeah. It's it's cool. It's okay. I'm good. It's there. cute. I looked at it. It's Check cute. It out. Thank you. Uh, the links are are all on our resources page for all of our oh, all of yeah. our plug-in so stuff because Joanna loves them. hyperlinking. So uh, hyperlinking is the best. Um, so check out the blog post. They are there. I love putting them out. I love helping the mental health of millennials. So check it out. Also, and you also write awesome blog posts. Can That's I just nice. can I plug your blog oh, post? Because sometimes I make an appearance too. So. You do. I I periodically talk about Joanna just existing in my life uh and instagram i'm here <laughs> instagram is just teletherapy underscore with sarah check it out joanna any pluggy duggies yeah i mean my, my website is orianatherapy.com at this point i'm not taking anybody until the fall just because i'm going to be on maternity leave um but uh but yeah stay tuned for that get excited yeah get excited get excited and uh i'll double plug sarah's blog because it's great all right. Until next time. We, we are, are your therapist, therapist next, next door. door. <laughs> Bye. Bye.